Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. Many forecasters think the recession is imminent in the UK and Europe, with the US not far behind. But how deep will the downturn be? How long will it last? And how strongly will the economy emerge on the other side? I want to know how this recession could compare with ones in the past, and which assets might be best to weather the storm. And in today's dumb question of the week, we ask, why does economic growth matter? And is it unsustainable? Okay, let's get into it. So, Roman, there's a lot of talk at the moment about recession. Winter is coming. That's what everyone fears. <laughs> but maybe before we really discuss the depth and the breadth and how long it's going to take, maybe let's just clarify, what is a recession? Because this became a super political question in the US quite recently. I think the US is quite special because they have a very specific definition of what a recession is. But if you look at the UK, it's very easy to define a recession. It's when you have two successive quarters of negative GDP growth. Now, GDP is just the measure of all the goods and services produced by a country. For the UK, it's about £2 trillion every year. And generally, what happens most of the time is that it drifts upwards. But then very occasionally, you have these periods when it does start to shrink, and it's usually caused by some kind of crisis. And of course, this time around, it's an energy crisis and an inflation crisis, which comes off the back of that. So where are we in terms of, are we in a recession right now? Is it coming imminently? Now, if you look at the Bank of England, they've just come up with a forecast for where UK growth is going to be for the next few years. And they're forecasting a fairly shallow recession, but one that's fairly long lived. So the way they've actually described it in their August monetary policy report is to say that there's going to be a sharp decline in household real income. And they also expect that consumer spending is going to fall as a result of people having less disposable income and spending more on things like utilities, for example. I think that's inevitable, isn't it, with this cost of living crisis? There just isn't going to be the money to be you know, going out for tapas every night. You know, there are some positives here, which is that the labour market's very tight. In other words, there's still demand for workers. And in fact, if you look at the number of job openings, it's roughly equal to the number of unemployed people who are seeking work. So that's a pretty tight labour market, which is not good news for inflation forces because a tight labour market is inflationary. But it's good news for people because you could find a job if you're looking for one. But unfortunately, whatever job you get probably won't have wage growth that keeps up in line with the rate at which prices are increasing. So that's the bad news. So what we're talking about here is not a deep and sharp shock to the economy, which is what we had in the global financial crisis, but a kind of long and drawn out but fairly shallow recession, which lasts five quarters. So that's a pretty long period of time for no growth. And it's pretty grim in terms of outlook for UK corporate earnings and the equity market. So it's certainly not a rosy picture. No, far from it. I mean, five quarters of recession, I think that is the length of time the financial crisis took. It's just they're not forecasting it to be as deep as that was. Yeah, so the same period, but not as deep, which is reassuring, I suppose, in a way. I mean, it's reassuring if you uh, believe the Bank of England forecast from it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> they're not, they don't have a great history with forecasting. But, you know, that's just economics, right? It just can't forecast the future. It can't even forecast the past. But if you look at the reason they give for it, it's obviously due to high gas prices and commodity prices. So they think it's very clearly down to what's going on with Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the sanctions and the supply shock. But that's not unique to the UK, is it? The whole of Europe is feeling that pinch. And that's the real worry, which is that there are some countries in Europe which are heavily dependent on Russian gas, particularly Germany and Italy. 
those countries are really facing a huge crisis. I mean, here we're talking about rolling blackouts, shutting down manufacturing companies and a fall in exports as a result of that. And of course, that's going to have a contractionary force on GDP. It's kind of different from recessions we've had in my lifetime. So I think the financial crisis was kind of about over-leveraged assets and the plumbing of the financial system. Whereas what we've got coming now is kind of old school, isn't it? It's like we've not got enough stuff to power the economy. It's a real problem. Yeah, I mean, it's a physical thing. Yeah. You know, everyone talks about things like new technologies and the internet and Web3. But in fact, it's just about pumping fossil fuels and moving them from one place on the planet to another place on the planet quickly enough and not being able to do that or not being willing to do that. And I think it's been compounded, hasn't it, by the fact that the other big providers of electricity in the EU, such as France, have had different problems. So their nuclear reactors, I think they've had more than half of them go offline for various reasons. There's trouble with the maintenance, but also the drought in Europe has meant that they haven't been able to run at full capacity because they can't dispose of the wastewater properly into the rivers. Another problem is that the temperature of the waters in rivers has been very high. And if you're trying to cool a nuclear reactor down, that's not good. So, you know, that's another problem. And another problem is the fact that rivers have been very low. So if you want to ship stuff on the Rhine, for example, it's been very difficult to do that or impossible because the barges simply can't get past these shallow regions. And a lot of the raw materials, including fuel, is transported on the Rhine. So it's really kind of confluence of many different factors. And then in China, what we've seen is a lot of very high temperatures and low river levels, which in turn means that a lot of hydroelectric power has had to be switched off. And many of the regions in China depend heavily on hydroelectric. So a lot of industries have suffered due to this, and that's going to have a dampening effect on growth. And you mentioned hydroelectric power. So I know that Norway has had lower river levels going through its dams, which has meant it's a big gas exporter, but it's got lower power supply now from its hydro plants. So it's having to sort of keep a bit more gas back, which is, again, <laughs> bad news, right, for continental Europe and the UK. Yeah, we get a lot of our gas from Norway via pipeline. You couldn't really create a scenario in which there was such a big squeeze on gas. I mean, if you put it in a novel, people probably wouldn't believe it. It's just too outlandish. Yeah, I mean, we got to the situation, didn't we, where we're all heating our homes with gas, or like 85% of the UK, I think, is heating their homes with gas, which, you know, you don't want that to stop in winter. I guess what worries me is that we're going to go back to some kind of Dickensian winter where people are having to burn stuff to keep warm. It's really hard to imagine that happening in the UK. I didn't think we'd ever go back to that. Well, let's hope it doesn't get that bad, but the seeds are certainly there for a significant recession. Yeah, and also a crisis in the form of energy. Now, the UK has taken action, as have other governments around the world, and they've come up with a cap on energy bills. Of course, it still depends on how much energy you use, but for the average household, they've said it's about £2,500 a year. Unfortunately, the way they've chosen to do this is by saying that they'll pay the difference between the cap and the wholesale price of gas and electricity. So in other words, they've got this massive short position on those commodities in the futures market. And in fact, this is probably the biggest short ever. Yeah, those words are worrying me, Ramin. <laughs> the biggest <laughs> short. The words big short never seem to uh, go well. And there's unlimited downside. Yeah. So that's what worries me. So if you're an energy speculator and you're taking the other side of the position, so you're long energy, well, it's great for you because 
The person on the other side of the trade has unlimited resources which they can fund with more guilt. So they just issue more government bonds. And they're a price insensitive buyer. They're saying to the market, we don't care what the price is. We're going to pay it whatever. And we're not telling our consumers to use less energy. So it's going to be, yeah, like you say, an unlimited liability for the UK government. I'm worried about that. I think that they're probably going to have to change that policy because if speculators really do step in, this could be like the Bank of England with George Soros in the 90s where speculators will trade against someone with, as you say, price insensitivity and almost unlimited resources via the gilt market. Yeah, it's unlimited nominal resources, but the release valve is the value of the pound. Which we've already seen has plummeted. And of course, if you look at the credit default swaps, that's measuring the probability of a UK default. They certainly have increased a lot. It's still not panic stations, but still, you know, that's not something that you really want to see. Yeah, a lot of the response from governments in the UK, but I think also around Europe, has been on the cost of this for consumers, which you can understand. That's what people care about. They think, oh, the price has gone up massively. How am I going to pay the bill? But the underlying problem is one of supply and demand. We need to try and suppress demand as much as we can and boost supply in every way we can. Whereas that's not really the conversation that's playing out politically at the moment. No, and I think the other problem is the structural problem with the longer term problem, which is where do you get your energy from? Clearly, if we do move to renewables, those can be generated within the country. So if you've got wind power offshore, onshore, or nuclear power, for example, it's all domestically driven. But if you've got dependency on things like fossil fuels, then you know there's a real problem, which is going to recur in future. Because this kind of crisis is not going to be unique, I don't think. No, I don't think it's unique. We've had energy crises in the past. And if you look at the US in the 70s, they had a huge supply shock. And this caused huge problems for their economy. And now you can see that they've invested in energy production domestically. They've got shale oil. And now they're almost self-sufficient for energy. Of course, they're still negatively impacted by high prices. Of course they are. But as an economy, they don't have to import huge amounts of fossil fuels, which countries like Japan, Germany, the UK do. And the federal government has just passed a bill to massively ramp up its rollout of renewable energy sources. Yeah, that's the Inflation Reduction Act. But I think the other point is that they've got a very large strategic petroleum reserve, which maintains a stockpile of gasoline, which then they can release into the market when there is one of these supply shocks. That's exactly what they've been doing this year. Yeah, exactly. So I think if you look at gasoline prices in the US, they've just been coming down, down, down for several weeks now. Because a lot of people, I think, who opposed Joe Biden were saying, this is a crazy decision to start running down our strategic reserves. But then I was thinking, you know, you've got a land war in Europe where Putin is weaponizing energy. If you're not going to use the strategic reserve now, when are you going to use it, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think that they've certainly been very well prepared for this. And they're reaping the reward of it, whereas other countries are paying the price for not being ready for it. So we've sort of said that the UK and Europe is pretty much nailed on. We're going to get a recession of some kind. The depth and the length of it is the question. The US, is it going to be in recession, a technical recession or not? Well, the complication there is that they have a committee which decides whether they've actually had a recession. So it's the NBER committee. It's the Business Cycle Dating Committee at the NBER, to be precise, Roman. I've done my research. Oh, well done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How do I get on this committee? I think I'd be well good at that. Yeah, it'd be great fun. So really, they're looking for an extended period of economic weakness. So the three criteria they measure are depth, diffusion and duration. 
The three Ds of disaster. Three Ds. <laughs> <laughs> and it's really a judgment call. It often coincides. In fact, it's almost always coincided with two periods, that's two quarters of negative GDP growth. They have discretion, like you say, whereas in the UK and Europe, we don't tend to use that. So they look at things like employment levels, personal income, industrial production, all these different indicators alongside GDP. But it's also important to remember why governments measure GDP, because their income is a proportion of GDP. So they really care whether GDP is growing or not, because if it's not, then they've got less money and less power. And of course, politicians don't like that. I think the other thing to say about how America defines a recession is it's definitely done in the rear view mirror. So we might not know for a year or two (laughs) when they look back and say, oh yeah, there was the recession. (laughs) So this is one of the problems I've got with GDP, which is if you use it as an investor, it's so backward looking that by the time it starts to fall, the crisis is probably gone and the equity market's probably already roaring ahead. So I think it's pretty poor from that point of view. And this is why a lot of people use alternative indicators, which are more timely. Yes, I know there are more timely indicators like the PMI, which we've mentioned in the past. Yeah, so these are called purchasing managers indices, where there's a company which contacts companies who are on a panel and it asks them, are things better at the moment or worse than they were? Are they improving? You know, what's your outlook for your business? And they have various components like new orders, things like inventory levels. So if new orders are picking up and inventory is low, then that suggests things are improving. And if you've got lots of stock and not many new orders, then clearly that's not so good. And you're saying it's not looking so strong right now. Well, no surprises there, right? The ones to look at generally for the UK and developed markets are services PMIs, because that's a much bigger proportion of the economy. It's about 80% of the economy. And if you look at the UK one, it shows that private sector business activity fell for the first time in a year and a half in August. So there was a severe downturn in manufacturing and a near stalling of the vast services sector. Now, a lot of that is focused in things which are consumer facing, such as restaurants, hotels, travel and recreational activities. And they say that's collapsing under the weight of the cost of living crisis. And there's also a fall in demand for business services because of the concerns over rising costs and the darkening economic outlook. Well, that's a pretty depressing story, Robin. No glimmers (laughs) of hope here. (laughs) Well, the jobs market, you know, that's what's looking like it's pretty strong. But unfortunately, there as well, they're saying that it is starting to weaken. And that's because the jobs market tends to lag economic growth. So once demand starts to weaken, then companies start to think about laying people off. Will the interventions, the fiscal interventions the UK government is making, which is effectively stimulus, isn't it, when you're pumping money into the economy to pay everyone's gas bill. Could that not help us avoid a recession, even if it's got all the risks we've talked about? Oh, yeah, no question. It's a positive thing because people will have more disposable income. Unfortunately, the way they've chosen to do it is indiscriminate. So a household which earns 200,000 a year will get exactly the same benefits, assuming they use the same amount of gas and electricity, as a family which earns 20,000 a year. But they actually use more gas and electricity, so they'll get way more benefit. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's the problem. And if that increases disposable income, then, you know, they will go out and spend and that will be inflationary. So I think the way they've chosen to do this is also pretty misdirected and also not very well targeted. It would require more administrative burden to target it, but it was probably the way to go, I would have thought. Yeah, they had to do something, no question. And if they hadn't, there's just no way they would have been re-elected. 
So something had to be done, but I think they're going to have to do a twist in terms of how it's funded, but also how it's targeted at some point. So if you look at the US PMI, also not so positive. So they say the US economy slid into a steepening downturn in August, and there's a risk of a deepening recession as households and businesses grapple with rising cost of living and tightening financial conditions. Yeah, that's the other point, isn't it? That the usual playbook from central banks and governments when we're on the verge of recession is slash interest rates to stimulate demand and pump money into the economy. But we've got such high inflation that that playbook cannot be followed this time. Yeah, it's like the central banks have switched off half of their mandate. So, for example, the Federal Reserve, their dual mandate is maximum employment and stable prices, i.e. inflation at 2% on average. But some people have said that their mandate is actually reduced to just one thing at the moment. They don't really care about a recession. In fact, a recession is going to help their inflation mandate because if there's slower growth, then that naturally reduces inflation. So I think, you know, shrinking the balance sheet and also whacking up interest rates really quickly as you enter a recession is fairly unprecedented. So we are entering uncharted waters here. And that's why people, I think, say a recession is looking inevitable. Is because the usual ways we avoid recession are unfeasible this time. So yeah, uncharted waters and let's hope for the best. And it's interesting, actually, that a lot of people say we're already in a recession. I don't mean like experts. I mean, just people on the street say, yeah, we're in a recession. Look at it. It's clear around us. Prices have gone up massively. But I think that's because when people think of the word recession, they're not thinking in the way that an economist would think. They're just thinking bad economic situation is what they associate with recession. And the worst economic situation for people tends to be inflation, or at least that's the most emotive one. It's interesting, Kyla Scanlon, who is great on TikTok, she produces lots of cool videos. And she actually described it as a vibe session, because people just get gloomy. And I think it is a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy when people do get downbeat on the economy. It affects their spending, it affects you know, their attitude towards their finances, and that in turn can reduce activity. So I think a lot of this is a pall of gloom descending on people and the way they live their lives. But really, I mean, the painful part of it is that many people lose their jobs. We haven't really seen that yet, though. Well, we have started to see that with tech companies where they are laying people off. But unemployment generally in the economy is very low. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's the lowest it's been for 50 years. It's very, very low. And in the US, it's even tighter, the labour market, than in the UK. So there they've got two jobs available for every unemployed person, whereas in the UK, it's just one. So that in turn is quite inflationary, because if it's difficult to employ people, then that makes it much more easy for people to negotiate their wages upwards. Or if you're an employer, you have to have a higher wage at entry in order to attract people into the company. I guess what's potentially reassuring about where we are now is that it seems that the financial system and the banks are in a much better position than they were before the financial crisis in 2007. So leverage levels look to be lower. They're much better capitalised. It looks like they're better positioned to weather a storm. Now, I know that's famous last words, right? But usually you'll get something that triggers a recession. In this case, it's energy crisis, right? But then what happens is companies start failing and defaulting. The banks suffer massive losses. They're less willing to loan to businesses and consumers and economic activity all just sort of contract at the same time. But can we avoid that this time? 
It's interesting in the weekly market roundup, I noticed that the default rate for 2022 has fallen off a cliff. You know, there's just no defaults happening at all. Do you mean for companies in the US? This is for companies in the US, yeah. And it's really odd because if you look at the all-in yield that companies are now having to pay, it's surged upwards because risk-free rates have increased. And then on top of that, you have to plonk a widening credit spread. So any company which is rolling over its debt is having to pay much more. So why aren't they going bankrupt then? I know, it's just, I think it's a kind of lag in the system because it takes a while for the debt to have to be rolled over. And I'm guessing that a lot of them reissued a lot of longer term debt when rates were super low. Yeah, I did see that actually, that rates of debt issuance during the COVID downturn were at kind of record levels. So it seems that maybe companies and chief financial officers did a good job and put their companies on stable long-term footing when they could get money cheaply. Oh, no question. When you see credit spreads looking so tight and risk-free rates at generational lows, well, clearly you'd be issuing as long a maturity bond as you could to lock in that low rate. So I think maybe that's part of it. But I think coming back to the bank problem, I think one of the problems is that, yes, the banks could lend, but they may not be willing to lend. Because if you're entering a recession, you're going to be tightening up on the credit standards for your counterparties. Because what you don't want is to have a loan book which goes bad as things get worse. So capable of lending, yeah. Not particularly leveraged, yeah. But willing to lend, hmm, maybe. Well, the government, in the worst case, can always do what it did in the pandemic and just sort of guarantee all the loans and <laughs> banks will then just lend <laughs> willy-nilly to anyone. PIMCO's <laughs> going to be happy because they did a lot of the bailout schemes, they managed them and made a pretty fat fee as a result. I mean, it tends to be the way it works. When things really turn bad, the government and the central bank becomes the lender of last resort, right? But we're a long way off that, it seems, right now. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is just a kind of blip at the moment. But I think there are some pathways which I could see where things could get a lot worse. Let's just hope we don't go down those routes. Well, let's dig into it because we're talking about how bad can it get? Well, how bad can it get? Well, I think what worries me is that if you look at GDP growth across the world right now, you've got a kind of synchronized slowdown. And that's really not what you want to see. You know, you've got the US, which is massively tightening financial conditions going into the recession. You've got China facing an implosion of its housing market and all of the associated paraphernalia that goes behind it, all of the manufacturing, all of the construction companies. All of the collateralized bonds at its banks. Yeah, a lot of those wealth management products, which depended on taking something and using it multiple times as collateral, often it was land which was used. Well, if those prices are coming down, that machinery is not going to work anymore. So I think a lot of that growth, which came from the housing market in China, is simply not going to be there. Plus, they've got their zero COVID policy. And every time there's an outbreak, you know, they're shutting down even tier one cities, which is pretty shocking. So China as well is in a kind of pretty bad state. And of course, that's a big part of the global growth engine. And it affects so many trade partners. And then, of course, Europe is in a parlous state because of what's going on with the energy crisis. There's no good news really anywhere in the world right now. And I think the kind of summary I would put on is Europe and the UK, almost certain to have a recession. The US maybe will have a recession. China probably will have a recession, but we probably won't know about it. <laughs> like, not officially. Now, what's not so bad is if it's just one region, because then you can rely on demand from other places to kind of export to 
And that kind of gives a little bit of impetus to your economy to try and get it started again. But at the moment, if we do see a global synchronized slowdown, then things could get pretty bad. And I've just done a video on Jeremy Grantham, which is pretty depressing because he's describing the final stage of a super bubble imploding as being one in which the fundamentals start to deteriorate. So you get a bear market rally, and then the final stage is the fundamentals getting worse. So that's the economy, that's earnings, and then you get another leg down in the equity market. So I think that's a potential outcome. Roman, it's never not been depressing to listen to what Jeremy Grantham has to say. <laughs> Let's be fair. Oh, I, I love listening to him. Yeah, he's great, but he's always saying we're going to be in for some doom. Oh, yeah, yeah, but it's beautifully reasoned. Yeah, I mean, he is a perma bear. You always have to bear that in mind when you listen to him. Same as Michael Burry, right? So it is interesting that there could be this coordinated slowdown across the world, and that's what we're seeing right now. But what signs are we looking for that things are either turning around and getting better or potentially, you know, spiralling into some sort of doom loop? Well, I think a central bank which is starting to ease or at least not aggressively raise interest rates and tighten financial conditions is a good start. So I think once that starts to happen, generally that kind of rings a bell for risk assets saying that, okay, it's okay to come out again and play. Yeah, no real sign of that yet, though, is there? I mean, the last statements I heard from the Federal Reserve at Jackson Hole was still very sort of hawkish. Oh, yeah. I mean, with inflation above 8%, they're going to be completely focused on being more aggressive at this point. So it really depends on the CPI number, which actually comes out this week. So is that another thing you're looking at then, the CPI number? If inflation is starting to ease, maybe it gives some leeway to the central bank to slow down with interest rate rises. Oh, definitely at the moment. And I think that's why there's so much focus on inflation numbers as they come out and digging into what components are driving it higher, that kind of thing. And also looking at the monthly numbers rather than the year on year, because that's when you start to see the kind of rate of change and whether that's slowing, which is exactly what we saw last month. And weirdly, are people also looking at the unemployment rate and hoping it kind of goes up a bit, which will give the central bank leeway to say, oh, yeah, the labour market's not so tight now. Maybe we don't have to be so aggressive. Yeah, it's bizarre reading the monetary policy report from the Bank of England. They're not cheering it, but they're saying that they expect by 2025, the unemployment rate's going to be at six and a quarter percent. From where we are now, which is currently 3.8 percent. So it's a huge increase. And that's a lot of people who will be out of work. Yeah, I mean, it's millions of people. So the amount of human suffering involved in that is pretty horrendous. I think that's the thing not to forget, isn't it, about recession, is it's not just numbers on a spreadsheet. It's people losing their jobs and not being able to afford to live properly. Yeah, I mean, that's the joke, right? Which is a recession is when your neighbour loses their job, a depression is when you lose yours. Right, yeah. But could this turn into a depression? What do we mean by depression? Where's the distinction between that and a recession? Not in the joke format, but in like, <laughs> like actual economists speak. There isn't actually a formal definition of depression, but it's a really deep recession. So here we're talking about a fall in GDP, which is deep and protracted. So instead of, say, a 5% fall, then we're talking about maybe a 10% fall in GDP. Really shocking stuff. And that's a long way off what we're predicting at the moment. So, I mean, best case is, you know, you look at the CPI numbers, they start to come down, which is very likely given that energy prices have started coming down. And I noticed that gas prices in Europe have also started to fall sharply. Yeah, that sort of happened once the EU said they were going to really intervene in the market. And perhaps there'll be a resolution of the war in Ukraine. And, you know, we will start to lift sanctions on Russia. I mean, that looks unlikely, but that would be the big game changer, right? 
Yeah. And I think that's been a lot of the cause of the problems. If you read the Bank of England's narrative, they pin a lot of the blame on that. So I think if that starts to resolve, then things could turn around very quickly. So the kind of best case, I'd say, would be that, yeah, energy prices start to fall, central banks become less aggressive, and then finally start to maybe even ease monetary policy, and risky assets soar upwards, is what you'd expect. So equity markets would kind of tear upwards. So sort of mild technical recession, and then back to the good times. Oh, the kind of okay times, I'd say. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, yeah. Let's not get greedy. Okay times, we'll settle for that. You know, when you look back and you think, oh, inflation at less than 2%, you know, wasn't that great. (laughs) Then I guess on the pessimistic case is that we do get these blackouts. Industry suffers in Europe in the winter. Company default rates do pick up. And then I think the key ingredient to make it even worse would be if there's something in the construction of the financial system that is hiding risks that we don't know about. And then it triggers that kind of Lehman Brothers moment and all bets are off. Yeah, this is the problem is the unforeseen risks. And when you shake the kind of growth tree and you get a little bit of a recession or maybe a kind of fairly deep recession, that's when the nasty shocks appear. Because then you suddenly start to see these financial scams unwind. And I remember in 2000, we had the thing with WorldCom. So that was a big accounting scandal, which was kind of exposed by a reversal in markets. That's the kind of thing which you often see. So like you say, that could cause a kind of leg downwards in risk, and it could start to create these kind of systemic effects. But you can never forecast that kind of thing. That's the trouble. So if you're an investor right now, and you're trying to position your portfolio going into this could be mild, could be bad recession, how do you go about it? Because I know there's such a thing as a defensive portfolio, which some people might opt to go for right now. Yeah, so things like gold actually do pretty well. If you think inflation is going to stay high and the diversification benefits between bonds and equities broken down completely, both are falling at the same time. And that probably persists while inflation is very high. So I think, you know, gold's a pretty good hedge in that kind of situation. And it's worked very well this year and it's held its value pretty well. So gold is a pretty good one if that's what you expect will happen. And of course, if you think that things are about to turn around, or if you're a long-term investor, then this has produced an opportunity to buy equity at low prices. So if you're looking at this investment that you make today, at the end of a telescope from 20 years in the future, you'd be thinking, oh my God, you know, that was a great time to invest. I call that the attack is the best form of defense portfolio. (laughs) Yeah. And it seems odd because it's contrarian. But of course, that's exactly when the greatest opportunities arise. So I think that's another way to look at it. Any money which you're going to be putting aside for a long period of time, it makes a lot of sense to buy equity when that happens. And in terms of equity, I've seen you say before that not all sectors are going to respond the same way. Yeah. So for example, defensives typically do well during a recession. So what are defensives? These are companies which produce stuff that you have to buy even if you haven't got much money in your pocket. So food, you know, basics, and they usually call consumer staples. So that's a whole sector. So that would be a company like Walmart or in the UK, a company like Aldi. Another one would be utilities because you still have to pay for utilities. But of course, at the moment, that's a problematic sector. Yeah, I wouldn't be piling into utilities to protect myself from this... uh energy spiraling crisis. (laughs) Yeah, the utility sector is probably not a good one right now. 
I mean, presumably the reason utilities tend to do well in recessions, usually as a defensive sector, is that, yeah, people have to heat their homes, so they have to continue buying from the utilities companies. But also in a recession, usually economic activity has come down, that's the whole point, and energy costs are falling. So the utilities input costs, buying the gas and the oil and the electricity is lower, so their margins are okay. But this time it's the other way around, the costs are going up. That's right. So utility is not a good one this time around. Healthcare is another one which I think still does work because people still have to worry about their health. They still have to buy medicine. So I think that's another defensive, which is pretty good. And the stuff you want to avoid is anything which is discretionary. So consumer discretionary would be things like Amazon, but high cost items which are not absolutely necessary. So I don't know, a new iPhone or... It's weird though. Apple is tending to do okay at the moment. Yeah, they've certainly got a monopoly in the US on cool. But it does speak to something larger at the moment, which is that corporate margins are holding up so far as are earnings, right? We haven't seen it play out in how well companies are doing yet. Yeah, for example, the Q3 earnings, they have started to revise them downwards because of high inflation, but it's only been falling by about 5% so far. And this is a forecast for earnings we haven't yet seen. So it has started to fade expectations, but it's nowhere near a year-on-year fall. It's just a smaller rate of growth people are expecting. Because everyone's been waiting for margins to be compressed as inflation sort of eats into the company's ability to have a decent profit margin. But I've seen people saying maybe more companies than we think have pricing power right now. Maybe there isn't as much competition in the economy as there has been in the past. Yeah, if you've got monopolies, clearly then companies do have pricing power. Large cap tech companies like Apple have such a dominant position, particularly in the US, where they probably do have some pricing power. But at a certain point, people are going to delay those very expensive new phones. But I think, yeah, you're right that the discretionary sectors are the ones that tend to do badly in a recession. Yeah. So things like recreation, all of the stuff that was mentioned in that PMI report, anything kind of customer facing restaurants, cinemas, all of those would probably suffer. Unless you're AMC, of course. (laughs) Now is the time to be a meme stock, right? (laughs) It was so sad. I was looking at the bankruptcy filing for Cineworld and the guy who ran it said, you know, it's just a shame that we're not a meme stock. Yeah, I know. I saw that. I was so sad. It was so sweet reading the, uh, the bankruptcy filing. One of the few companies that is actually defaulting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But maybe they'll come out of it. You know, it's just a restructuring at this point. It's not a chapter seven, which is kind of liquidation. It's a chapter 11, which is just restructuring. But it's not looking good. The one thing we haven't really mentioned so far is real estate and property, which in a lot of countries was arguably massively overinflated. Is that the potential source of real trouble? And it's been amazing how well that's held up, given what's going on. So increasing funding rates for mortgages combined with people having less disposable income, you know, that's a terrible combination for things like house prices. And yet it really hasn't started to fall off much yet. But it's interesting, if you look at places where there's the most variable rate mortgages, so that's Australia, the UK, for example, whereas in America, they've got 30-year fixed mortgages. Whereas in the UK, eventually it's going to go to a floating rate. You're going to have to refinance at a higher rate. There's going to be a lag because people can wait until the next refinancing. But, you know, there's no question that the housing market's going to suffer. The one I've seen has started to suffer already is Canada, where they maybe had the most ridiculous house prices. Canada and Australia, in fact, I've got some clients from both those countries and they both 
have said that they've noticed that starting to happen. So I think, you know, there are egregious mispricings there and the run-up's just been unsustainable. So if you look at the Case-Shiller Index in the US, the year-on-year increase in house prices is still 20% per year. That's way above the rate of income growth, which is kind of setting the sustainable level of growth for house prices. I mean, potentially that could be one of the, I hesitate to say silver linings because it sounds (laughs) completely wrong to talk about silver lines of a recession when it affects so many people negatively, but we could do with house prices becoming a bit more sensible, I think. And more affordable, yeah. But are there other things which a recession could bring about which are potentially positive? Yeah, there's always this idea of creative destruction where when you have one of these pullbacks in the economy, you kind of sweep away all the bad stuff. So the misallocation of capital, So many crypto companies, are they really necessary? (laughs) You're willing to crash the economy just to get rid of crypto companies. (laughs) (laughs) Well, some of them, you know, there are so many scams out there. And I think there's been a huge misallocation of capital. But I think more generally, you've got companies which just aren't viable. These zombie companies, which probably haven't contributed much to growth and won't in future. So by sweeping those away... You get a crop of new startups, which are kind of more dynamic and which actually do useful things. Plus, you know, the energy situation, I think many people are now thinking, well, you know, maybe I should have solar panels or maybe I should be thinking about driving an electric car. And also governments are surely thinking we need to find other sources of power. We can't be relying on Russia ever again. Yeah. And and that's definitely a positive. There are positives that come out of this. So it's not all doom and gloom. And also, presumably, inflation will come down quicker if there's a downturn in economic activity. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. That's probably ultimately how they're going to get it under control. It can be difficult to allocate a portfolio during a period of recession. So if you want to discuss that with other people, then the Pension Craft community is a great place to share insights. If you want to learn more about that, just go to pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week is, why does economic growth matter? And is it unsustainable? So we've just talked about recessions and, you know, that's a downturn in the economy, slower growth or negative growth. But why do we really care about this? So many people nowadays are saying infinite growth forever is unsustainable. It's heating the planet, it's making our environment worse, and it's not actually delivering for what people really care about in their lives. What do you think, Roman? Well, GDP is not a measure of quality of life, that's for sure. So I think if you just optimise for GDP growth, what you're maximising is the increase in the rate of the production of goods and services, which doesn't necessarily make you happy as a person or as a society. So maybe what we should be optimising is some kind of happiness measure. I don't know what that would be. Yeah, I mean, there have been experiments. I think New Zealand have been looking at alternative measures of how they can target happiness in their economy. And I think under David Cameron, there was talk of that, and he got a lot of flack for it. <laughs> People were basically saying, oh, if you're failing on growth, so you just look at some other measure. <laughs> Changing the goalposts. Yeah, exactly. But a lot of people have questioned infinite growth. Can we continue growing forever when we've got a finite planet? And I think the answer is no. I think at a certain point, population stops growing. We're not too far off that now. And if productivity doesn't increase, then GDP will be constant. So you will reach some kind of steady state. The argument for economic growth, I think, is typically that it does lead to rising living standards over time, both through higher wages for workers and greater taxes for the government, which it can then use to provide services. 
And really, the standard of living for most people in the world has only started to increase over the last two centuries when we saw that explosion of economic growth after the Industrial Revolution. Is that not fair? I think at the moment what we're seeing is pretty much levelling up. So places like China are increasing incomes very rapidly still as they urbanise. And that's true of much of the emerging markets as well. So, for example, India, you know, you see many more middle-income households there now than, say, 30 years ago. Whereas in developed markets, you've got, you know, maybe a period of a decade when real wages haven't increased. And I don't think people in DM are very happy about it because, you know, what you care about is yourself. Yeah, I think there is a perception that there's stagnation. And yeah, a lot of people feel that coupled with inequality, their own individual standards of living have been falling, at least on a comparative basis. And there's a generational difference, isn't there? I mean, your generation, Michael, feels that their parents were actually better off than they are, which no generation ever wants to see. Yeah. I mean, there definitely is that perception. I don't know whether it's true. Like, it's certainly true that we can't buy houses as quickly or as (laughs) easily as previous generations. But then that is just one measure, right? There are so many things we do benefit from, like cheap travel. We can go abroad a lot more. We live a lot longer. We are paid more. We have the ability in our pockets to talk to anyone on the planet at any time. Our TV is way better. (laughs) There are so many things where our life is better, really. It's just I think there's this one massive thing, which is housing. So you mentioned this thing called the degrowth movement. What's that all about? I hadn't actually heard of it at all. Oh, it's really starting to take off in sort of navel-gazing liberal circles, Roman. (laughs) No, it's interesting, the concept. So the basic argument is that, yeah, maybe growth has done really well up to now and has raised the living standards of a lot of people, but it's come at the cost of the environment and it just has to end, right? We have to have long-term, slightly negative GDP growth to bring us back to a sustainable level. Now, I think there's kind of three schools of thought here. The first one is the classical view, which is that growth by any means is what we should be aiming for. It just will improve the lives of the broadest number of people possible. That's what we want. The second view is, yeah, okay, growth is okay, but it needs to be decoupled somehow from carbon emissions to prevent climate change. That's kind of the Green New Deal argument. I kind of like that one. I think those of us on the sort of centre-left, that's where we're going to tend to focus, right? We need the growth and the money, but let's have the best of both worlds. (laughs) And then the third is that that second position is just impossible. Growth will always have environmental consequences, both from carbon and destruction of environments. And we just need to focus on something better, like happiness, and stop worrying about just getting more and more stuff. And that's the degrowth movement. I'm not convinced that that's going to work. I guess I've always come from a background where GDP is seen as the kind of be-all and end-all, and corporate earnings growth is the be-all and end-all, which is kind of linked to it. So you'd never even consider starting to live in a world where the trend downwards starts. You know, that's pretty scary, in fact. Yeah, I know, it is. Because you're talking about less money for the government and less money for individuals, just like managed decline, in a way. It's quite sad, in a way, isn't it? You know, you never think about decline. Everything in human history has really been about, you know, exploring, finding new areas to populate and build. So it's pretty shocking that now we're talking about contraction and managed contraction. I mean, it's a niche movement, isn't it? But it is rising in prominence. But it's like, you know, people talk about the Great Reset. I've recently been looking at that because I did a video about it for members. It's amazing, some of the conspiracy theories. But one of them is this kind of idea that we're going to de-industrialise. And it's the one percenters that want to do it to us. 
But this is like the opposite, which is like it's a movement which is actually promoting that for normal people. Yeah, it's a bottom-up movement. It's a bottom-up great reset. (laughs) (laughs) That just sounds horrific. (laughs) The thing I have to come back to is that second idea, that we want to still pursue growth, but we want to do it without destroying the climate, right? And how can we do that? I think it is possible, isn't it, to decouple if we see a decline in the energy intensity of GDP. And energy intensity there means how much energy is needed to create a unit of GDP. And that has been declining in much of the world. So in 1990, it required 181 kilograms of oil, or the equivalent of that, to produce $1,000 of global GDP in purchasing parity terms. In 2015, that's come down from 181 to 123 kilograms. So that's a significant improvement. If it keeps on that trajectory, then the cost of growth is not so bad for the environment. Also, if we increase energy efficiency, electrification, keep growing the use of renewables, maybe we can get there. But will we get there in time? Right, is the question. We're against the clock here. (laughs) And certainly something like insulating your house isn't going to make your quality of life worse. If anything, it'll make it better because you pay less for the bills. So I think many of those changes will be fairly painless. But certain things like transporting food across the planet, you know, I think a lot of that will be questionable in the future. Well, it's interesting you say that. I saw an interesting study which showed that at least for food that's grown in very fertile land on the other side of the world. And hot countries, I saw that, yeah. And then is then transported by container ship, which is by far the least polluting mode of transport. It's actually got much fewer carbon emissions, weirdly, than food grown around the corner on an organic farm, which uses a lot more land and water and things like that. So it's it's a strange one, actually. It's kind of counterintuitive. But I've heard that as well, that if you look at bananas, for example, it would take so much heat to actually grow them in a European country that it is cheaper to kind of ship them. I mean, maybe you should just say we should stop eating bananas if we can't grow our own bananas. But, you know, I like bananas. But this is the thing, I guess, is what does matter to us as people. We did an episode a while back now called How Much Is Enough? And it's actually been one of our most popular episodes and people have referenced it quite a lot. And I think it shows that the accumulation of stuff and consumerism isn't what really matters. But like you said earlier, how do we get a good measure of what really matters to people and how much GDP growth sort of influences that. Because we don't care about GDP in itself. We only care about it because it allows us to live a good life. And I think the things which do make us happy are often the simplest things. You know, you don't have to have expensive things in order to be happy, which is an odd thing to talk about on an investment podcast. But I think the utility function's probably been wrong in the past. So, you know, move away from GDP, I think, could be cool. Yeah, certainly for developed economies where the standard of living is already relatively high. I think it's kind of offensive to talk about the developing world and like maybe you shouldn't have so much growth, right? They, they do need to grow. And also wages there need to kind of equilibrate with the ones in the West. Eventually there won't be an EM, at least that's the hope. Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. It would be great if you could leave us a quick rating or review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership, courses, and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pensioncraft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.